if there was a word of advice I would have to any CEO who wants to become plural is try and be a non-exec director while you're still CEO. And I think that gives you experience to know what you're going to be doing is it when you go plural because you've got some examples of where you have to be different to your CEO role because what they don't want to hire is someone who's going to be a CEO on top of the CEO. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Private Equity Power Talks, Map of the Maze. I'm your producer, Richard Ayliffe. In this episode, we're joined by retail CEO turned chair, Don Henshaw. Don has had his hand in the growth of many name brands. He was MD of Krispy Kreme UK and was responsible for the brand's introduction to the UK market, and also CEO of high-end paint brand Farrow & Ball, where he oversaw a successful SBO in 2014, from European capital to Aries management, valued at £275 million. Don will be recalling some of the challenges he faced adjusting to the private equity CEO role and how he drew on his former inspirational leaders to approach growth with an entrepreneurial spirit and owner's mindset that you need to succeed under PE investment. He will also be discussing life after the CEO role and how he started and continues to nurture a successful plural career. Now, over to Sam and Don. So really pleased to have Don Henshaw, uh, one of our founding members with us this afternoon. Don's uh, got a fascinating career and background behind him, now chairing uh, a couple of private equity-backed businesses. Um, his private equity claim to fame was Farrow and Ball, really built that business, took it through a secondary exit. It's just gone through a tertiary exit, hasn't it? With, with, a, with, with the CEO that succeeded Don. And we're gonna to talk to Don really about his experiences that he that he really sort of reflects back on as a CEO coming into private equity for the first time today. And we're also gonna talk a bit about sort of big challenges he faced with Farrow and Ball, perhaps how he might do things um, slightly differently or prepare slightly differently. Um, and we're also gonna to talk to him about the transition from CEO to chair. So thank you for joining us, Don. Really, really good to see you. Likewise, Sam, and I appreciate you having me along. I'm looking forward to it. So, so I'm going to I'm going to explain to our listeners that slightly strange accent is born in New Zealand, but not actually born in New Zealand. Is born in the UK, bit of time in America, time growing up in in New Zealand, and then came to the UK. What are you trying to say, Sam? Is I'm a mongrel? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where is that accent from? Where is it? Uh, but, but basically, you, you grew up in, in, in north yeah. of Auckland. You came to the UK and then started your career here. And you worked for P&G, Procter & Gamble. Great place to start. And you've just been telling us about your experience with Diesel, which I forgot, actually, you, you, you were the UK MD. You set the business up here in the UK and then went and sought them out in, in America. But what, what was... Krispy Kreme is probably the place we're going to start. Yeah, and no, then, I think it's a, a good place. And I think... For two reasons, because I think obviously private equity is part of the theme here, but also part of the reason I left Diesel was it was a fantastic experience, both in the UK and the USA. And Renzo is a fantastic person. In fact, you know, I, I know one of the time we're going to talk a bit later about people who've inspired me, and he's one of them. We'll, we'll not get to Renzo, but he also has a philosophy that he kept 100% ownership for himself. Now, he paid very well and he gave fantastic bonuses, but having spent six years there, I realized I wanted equity and I knew that therefore I couldn't stay forever. And, and therefore I wanted to get on a journey where I could have equity and, and Krispy Kreme became that vehicle in a roundabout way, funnily enough, because I was president of international for them for 
18 months. Did you bring it to the UK? Was well, exactly. So I then became the franchisee for the UK with three Americans. We we set the business up in 2003 and um, successfully built it to. We almost sold it in 2007, actually, LDC and. The 08 crash was coming. Actually, my chairman gave some very good advice. He came back from it and goes, oh my God, there's a, there's a big recession coming. He could just feel it. We need to, we can't do this deal. We need to batten down the hatches. It took him a couple of weeks to convince me, but he was absolutely right. So we had a good recession if there was such a thing you could have in 08 or 09 because we were an affordable treat. But more importantly, we'd scaled our business back. So we, we were able to cope from any sort of, you know, because lots of businesses were obviously really impacted then. Um, for me personally, I guess what I knew though was that it was going to be at least two or three years before we had a successful sale to private equity like we were about to do at the beginning of 08. And I thought, well, I've been doing this for, you know, seven, eight years. I don't, you know, if you do a deal, you're then in for another four or five years. I couldn't see myself doing it, particularly because it was only a franchise. So you're constrained geographically and also a little bit with what you can do with the brand. Um, so I stepped aside and stayed as a non-exec director at the beginning of 2010 because the opportunity came to join Farrow and Ball. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a second. But... Krispy Kreme then went on to have a successful exit in 2011 with private equity. So I was aware of that process, although I didn't lead it the same way because I was only a non-exec by then. And then actually Krispy Kreme was sold again to a trade buyer in 2016. Yeah, actually. they did well, didn't they? They, they did, they yeah. Did really well. yeah. So how did you get involved with Farron Ball? Because they, they, had, they were already PE-backed by the time you arrived, weren't they? The European Capital invested them in the sort of mid- 2006, yeah, they invested them. And they backed a, a CEO, a guy called Josh, and um, unfortunately, Josh got um, terminal cancer and died in early 09. Yeah. And um, so in the case of 09, when I was just starting to think about, actually, I need to be doing something different because we've got a great business here, but I don't want to. And we actually, fortunately, in Krispy Kreme had a really good operation director who's the CEO of the company now. So we had someone to replace me in the business. Um, and I got a call from a recruiter about Power and Ball. And I, and I listened, and I was interested, and I went through the process. And I think that... Frankly, it was probably only about two people applying for the job because it was the recession in 09. And, it had a difficult and time. It, it was a very difficult time. And, and, you know, we were close to our bank covenants. They had no CEO. And European Capital actually were having difficulties themselves as a private equity house. So um, it was a, a leap of faith. But I guess from my point of view, it goes back to what do I look for in a business. I felt like I had a great business model fantastic brand that really wasn't that well known, particularly outside of the UK. I mean, even in the UK, it wasn't as well known as obviously it is now. And when I went round and I met the people, it was such a fantastic group of people who had been in that business, a lot of them for a long period of time. Um, and those ingredients, if you have a great product, you have a great brand and great people, then you know you've got a business model you can build on. Mm -hmm. And and therefore, I was I was very excited to get the opportunity. And like I said, I think I was probably only a couple of people who was willing to put money into a business in uh, what was the end of 2009. So that was 2009. And yeah, so I started in January 2010. I, I, I agreed to join in about the October I think it was. And when did you when did you come out when did you I left in the summer of 2018 so okay. yeah so I did so eight and a half years best part of nine years yeah, yeah. You, you, you worked uh, for Procter & Gamble big blue chip experience great training it's obviously the, you know, the best place to start is in a corporate environment that train the hell out of you um, then you work for an entrepreneur so you know that's that's again fantastic experience as mm. you're embarking on coming into private equity for the first time um, you own the franchise of Krispy Kreme, so again, another good good experience towards the PE career. But how how did you find how did you have to adjust as a CEO when you came into Farrow and Paul? Was it was it a very different playing field for you, or it, sort of, I, I think did it feel it, familiar? I think it felt familiar on one level because 
uh, I don't overcomplicate business. Business is business. So it's about what's the business model and in the process of being recruited to do the role. I'd had a lot of conversations with European about what the business model was and what they were hoping to achieve. So I think I was joining being aligned. It wasn't like they, I had in my mind, they want to do something very different than what I thought I wanted to do with Farnball. Mm-hmm. I think the big change that happens from a, a, a private run company like like Diesel with Renzo or Krispy Kreme, which is a franchise and owned by myself and three others, was that the horsepower and resource that comes around numbers and the, the what's the right word? The forensic driving down on data. Uh, and some of that's a real positive because I like using data for making decisions, but it's also, it's a, it's a bit of a, I want to say not a crutch for private equity, but it's a it's their major tool for private equity. And not every decision can be made just on the numbers alone. So I think learning that it became and in and, and European and Aries, both my private equity were fantastic owners for, for me personally, but also for Farrow and Ball. So I don't have one of these horror stories to be able to say, oh, I learned this. But I, without a doubt, there's a monthly rigor and discipline around numbers. And I was very lucky because coming in, I mean, we had some real challenges coming into the Farrow and Ball, but I had a fantastic finance director. She'd been in the business for six years at that time. And so she already knew all the numbers. So I didn't, you know, so I had someone on my side helping me very quickly with where the numbers are, where are we on bank covenants? Because all those things were really tight in 09 and early 10. And I had to try and get the management team to write a new business plan to take the business forward. And we had to do it within the constraints of what we had, knowing that it wasn't like European, we're gonna say, oh yes, if you want a couple more million, we'll throw some more money. And they, you know, they they just weren't in a position to do that, nor was it the right thing to do for the business. so I think challenge-wise, I probably had a couple of real challenges under PE ownership. The first one was probably my own one, joining, getting up to speed of understanding Farrow and Ball, and then getting a new five-year plan that was signed off in the July, sort of six months after I joined. And that was a, a really steep learning curve for all the different factors involved with that. But they were very supportive there. But it was a, it was a real challenge for me because I was suddenly having to learn and do things in a way that maybe I hadn't done before because you have – a level of scrutiny and you turned a business around really didn't you i mean it was you close to covenants you said as you, as you yeah but it wasn't broken it was it was a it was an interesting business it was um and it's a very profitable business things got squeezed in the recession because what happens everyone sat on their hands all the independents stopped ordering stock and you know you have all those sort of cash flow squeezes but fundamentally the the business was profitable it wasn't like we suddenly went into a, a loss-making scenario and if i actually we grew in 09. Now, some of that was because of currency, what happened with the sterling versus dollar. But, you know, the business didn't go backwards. It just, it made things very tight. But to be honest, within probably only four or five months of being in Farrow and Buy, by the summer of 2010, we weren't, you know, we had to keep an eye on covenants. We were no longer worried about them on a monthly basis or anything like that. We knew we could start to invest and move forward. And it was much more strategically, how do we grow this business quicker? And that was probably the biggest change because I, my predecessor had very much a view of you'd have an individual store you'd run in the market and you would have an agent or distributor who would take care of the country. So in France, we had an agent and we had one store in Paris that we owned and run. Likewise in Holland, likewise in Belgium, likewise in Ireland. And I was very much of the view of actually the big markets here are France and Germany. We should own those markets. We should wholesale and retail and we should build a, a network of stores because retail is really hard to run one store. You, you need staff, you need to set up companies, all the stuff to do. It makes no sense to do for one store. But if you can have scale on retail, it builds your brand, but you, you get efficiencies as well. And so therefore, that was a strategic shift to say we're actually going to be much more 
retail heavy in a couple of markets and own those markets. So there was quite a bit of capital expenditure. We had to pay the distributors off, et cetera. But it was money we, we could do. And it was actually the key reason for the success because on the back of that, France and Germany in particular really exploded growth-wise. How many stores did you end up with in those markets? Uh, by the time I left, we had, um, I won't get exactly right, we had eight in France and seven in Germany. And then uh, you were supplying into other... Other retailers oh, and other yeah, absolutely we still had wholesalers. We had wholesalers already in France and that. You know, we were already in good independence across it. We simply just expanded it. We went into Tollens, which is equivalent like a brewer's in the UK. It's um so we expanded the distribution base, but we already had a good independent distribution base. But what the retail stores did it built the brand awareness for just not just us, but for those independents as well. Yeah. Um and then the other one was that I invested heavily back into the UK. The UK had been Funding everything else, but had you know we had a key account and home base, and there was no home base key account manager. You know, it's like the sales and marketing director talk to them twice a year. Well, if you want to manage those type of accounts, you have to have someone who does the work for them because they expect the supplier to do the work for them. And you know that home base must have been a massive customer. Well, for you, it was, and I mean, without giving the numbers away, you know, in two thousand and ten, let's just say it was X. Well, when two times X within four years, it was twice the size. So it went from a few million to you know double digit millions. And that was simply by giving it love and attention and a key account manager. What do you reflect on? What do you, what do you think that, uh, what sort of experiences really landed for you in that secondary process? And then, and then life after a secondary as a CEO? Yeah, I think, I think there's some really, I, I think in some ways I had much more learnings in the secondary process than in the first, maybe because you know, European had already owned it for a few years. They knew the business really well. So I was the newbie coming in. I had to get up to speed. I think the big surprise that I should have thought about and didn't was you. everyone knows how much work you have to go into selling a business. So you have to get your item together. You have to do your commercial due diligence, your financial, then you have to go and do all your, you know, your, your kissing the frogs, whatever you want to call it. And eventually you find the buyer and you do the deal on that takes anywhere from six to 12 months. And in our case, it took us nine months from start to, to when we actually got the sale. And you do take your eye off the ball yeah. of the business as, as much as you try not to, and you keep it going as best you can. But I think that's well documented, everyone knows about it. I think the bit that I hadn't thought through was, great, Aries, I've got a great partner, and we were really lucky. There was a number of people who wanted us, and it got to the point where there were two, Aries and another, and you know, it was almost like, well, choose the one that you think we best fit for you. I mean, European were that comfortable and, you know, chose Aries, very glad we did. And, um, but what I hadn't thought about was I had to then get them up to speed. They wanted to know everything about this new business they bought. And so actually, I, I think I worked harder in the six months after the purchase than I'd worked before. I mean, that sounds crazy, but you had to get them up to speed with everything. And I've been so used to having a private equity house that knew everything about the business. And here I was having, so you had to spend what I would call wasn't very fruitful time because like you know they would ask all the questions about well why are we doing this or why are we doing that and of course I'd already relived them and I had a European I had a P in European capital who already knew the answers to that and it was like well just trust me we've we've already looked at it. it's not the right thing to do but P being P they want to dig through they want to do all that and they you know we they wanted to hire some consultants in the U S and revisit what we did last when you go to market in terms of you know just understanding who. The right partner is going to be before you get to market. Don't let the market dictate where you know where the buyer is going to come from. Sort of be, do the preliminary work up front to say, okay, she's probably going to be those four or five firms because that I know that they get it. They they've been courting me for a while. We've been spending time together. 
And I think, I think again, it depends who your advisor is and, and the mindset of your selling PE house. Mm. I mean, we had Ross Charles who represented us and, and European had a, a clear mindset. It was, you know, about what they wanted to try and achieve from a return point of view. So they were aligned. And I think Ross Charles were very good. They're obviously well-known and they're big in the sector, but they, they had a grid and they'd worked out very clearly who's, who's got the right level of funds to buy the business to the size and sort of ticket that we wanted to get from a purchase price point of view. You know who's already in deals and therefore they're not going to be taking another one on even if they're interested in it and then other ones which are like well maybe they'd be interested but they might not have the funds right now because they're busy fundraising right now or they're busy you know selling a business and by them having that knowledge it was really good because they didn't take it you know we didn't we didn't see 30 firms you know we effectively quite early on saw five got very close to to one actually in that process of the fight with two probably but but one more and then actually there was a second wave and Aries actually came into that second wave and then it became down to two and then one so I think that made it less painful than you hear some people go through because they see everybody because their advisors haven't done the you know the sifting before they get to the management team they let the management team also do almost do the sifting whereas Rothschild very much did that for us mm-hmm. also post-secondary didn't you have to didn't some of the team retire at that point? Well, yeah, sorry. It's a, it, but I think you're right. And that was a, a big workload factor. But it was one I knew about and one I talked about openly with Aries and the other people because I had two directors been in 15 years and, you know, the operations and the, the sales and marketing director. And I had the um, FD who'd been in nine and they all wanted to exit with a reasonable time frame. So we'd organized it so the marketing director left literally when the deal was done and I had one lined up to start. And then um, the finance director had agreed they'd spend a year and go through a financial year, which gave, of course, the private equity house comfort and gave me time to find the FD mm-hmm. for that. And then the operation director was a year after that. But it, it meant a constant changing your bench, if you like, for your team. That's hard work. Uh, it is hard, and it's, but it's also, it reinvigorates as well. Yeah. It, it's good in the sense, that's why I said that first six months, I've worked harder than I did before, because you had to do get the new team on board. You had to get Aries on a new five-year plan. Mm. And that then got compounded, because not long after that, two things happened. One is Bunnings bought Homebase, and Homebase was our biggest client, and you know a significant portion of 30% of our revenue. And um, and then Brexit happened, which meant that the property market really came to halt in the UK for a year or so. Yeah. And um, our revenue dropped in half over the space of 18 months with Homebase. So, I mean, we had to really think that through and there were some really tough choices because B&Q always wanted to have us, but we'd always just been with one because we didn't want to get into price wars. We were, you know, Farrenball doesn't price promote. We don't yeah. want to price promote. How did you get around that? Well, we, well, we, 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 We'd been having a dialogue for a long time with BNQ because every year we would go and see him or they'd want to come and see us and we'd have a conversation. Every year we said no. And we basically, we made a decision and said, actually, we're probably going to transition away from what was money. So BNQ bought into this. They agreed with how they would restock and put ourselves in. And we rolled out with them. And then, of course, Bunnings pulled out. So Homebase got bought by Hillco. So we've ended up staying with both. But I think... They both understand that there's no benefit in price promoting Farron Ball because all you end up doing is taking the value out of the brand, which has you know, got a nice margin for them and it's a nice turnover number. And I think the best example we can see, when I joined Farron Ball 2010, we were just under 30 pounds a tin and Dulux were at 24 pounds. Now Dulux is at 17 pounds and we're just, we're over 40 pounds a tin now. But yeah, so you, 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 you learn from your competition as well, I guess. 
So what, how, what, what was the pathway to you handing over to a successor and, and coming out and embarking on the, the plural career you have now? Well, there's a couple of factors. I think one was um, when I did the, the deal with Aries, it was very much with the, you know, let me do four or five. I only want to do four or five years. So you were pretty explicit. Um, I was very that. clear I didn't want to go again, but they were fine with that yeah. and they understood. Um, and it was very much around the target was like 2019 and we would, you know, get my successor in the, as the process we were about to sell or just after, depending what we, you know, it wasn't decided, but we just knew. I think the combination of Brexit happening, Bunnings, the business, we knew we weren't going to be selling in 2019. We, you were going to have to get clear through the Brexit process before this business got sold. Um, and, and therefore the time you're on show, but on a personal level, I had a brother get cancer in 2017 and my father died as well so there's another factors then it was like we just had a really good conversation with Aries and it was like yeah well why don't we find my replacement they will take it through Brexit and then sell it on yeah. and so that's what Aries did they found my replacement he started in the summer of, of 18 and, and I left so it, it worked fine it was probably a year earlier than I planned originally but I wasn't hung up about that it was you know yeah that's was, quite an important point there there was that you you made it pretty clear at the point of a secondary deal, many of our CEO members would ask that question of just like, how do I come out of this? You know, if I'm going to keep rolling on a, you know, secondary tertiary buyout, when's my when's my departure? And yeah. I think you've got to be pretty, you've got to be pretty upfront about it. Uh, and uh, you know, you've you've grown the business, you've got a plan, you've got a continued plan, but you don't necessarily have to stay for the full term next time round. You've just got to be pretty explicit about. I think you do. I think you also have to look at it in context of your management team, mm -hmm. because I think in my case, I changed the management team or significant portion of it. Um, a commercial director I'd hired in my, with European, he came over with me into Aries, but the others all were in a transition out. So I had a new team that the new CEO could then take on. I think that if maybe I had the same group of people, it would have been much harder to do. So I think as a CEO, you need to be thinking about your team. And if you want to exit, you've got to make sure you've got a young enough and fresh enough team to be able to make the CEO transition fine. Because what a private equity will not want to do is see three or four all exit at the same yeah, time. You have, you have to manage it at the right time, particularly the CEO, particularly the finance director. Yeah. I know the um, ideal is obviously to have a successor internally that you can develop, but you don't always have that. You don't, and also you have to ask that of the private equity because sometimes the private, in Aries' case, uh, well, we, I didn't have a successor internally, but they were very much wanting to choose their own person. So therefore that was, whereas another private equity might be different about that. I don't have experience to know, but I think you have to have that conversation with, with the private equity house about how they see that recruitment process. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, succession planning is... It can be a real challenge. You've just got to face into it, haven't you, really? You've got to build that team out internally yeah. and give yourself some options. Ideally, give yourself some options internally, um, but if they're not there, then be pretty upfront about, well, this is the timescale I'm working to. Yeah. Um, and private actually react pretty well to that. They know they're not going to have a CEO forever. Don't they? Um, so yeah. There's always somebody else no, there around is the corner that. with another box of tricks. And I think exactly. And I think it's also fresh eyes are always yeah. good for business. I mean, it's interesting because I've sort of I spent you know almost nine years at P and G. I spent almost nine years at Krispy Kreme. I spent almost nine years at Farron Ball. And I think there's something in my psyche that sort of knows that you've you've done all your stuff. And you, for me personally, one of the reasons I've changed different categories, I want the fresh challenge of a new industry. I want to learn first of all about fashion. I want to learn about food. I want to learn about interior design. And even interesting enough now in my plural career, I've consciously gone after businesses that are in different categories to what I've done in the past because actually that's more stimulating for me. I find it more interesting to work out how to help them and, and keep myself 
engaged. And it sounds like I'm not engaged. Who sort of inspired you then as as a as a CEO? We were talking before we started recording about um, developing a leadership brand, a leadership style, thinking Mm -hmm. about how you show up, not just as a CEO, but across your management team should be doing that. Yeah. Um, Who did you learn from? Who is yours? What was your source of inspiration? Um, I think the the single biggest person would be Renzo of Diesel. I mean, and and for me, there's a couple of reasons for that. Renzo is a natural entrepreneur, 100%. He started the business himself. He is a incredibly inquisitive person and he his life is diesel and that, and I mean that in a positive sense so Renzo is a great role model and we, we complement each other as well I guess we're yin and yang I'd be asking him about brand values or how are you structuring this or what's your strategy and he'd be going well this is the trend that's going I've been in Japan and everyone's wearing purple and we're going to go after purple jeans and it's like so it's the passion he bought it was that it, sort of it's the variable. passion and the communicating of that mm-hmm. that and but also it was the blending of himself and his business, I, P&G was like, I went home, I hung up my jacket at home and I was, weekends and nights were nothing to do with work. You know, when I worked hard and then I went home. And of course, it, it, Forenzo was all one of the same. So on Wednesday morning, he wanted to go see his son play football school. He watched saw his son play football school, but on a Saturday, he wanted to go shop, he wanted to shop. You know, so it's like- It's the owner's mindset. So. He, he definitely opened my mindset to how you work and what you do is so much about what you are. You shouldn't try and compartmentalize them. Sorry, I didn't say yeah, that. No, that's per- yeah, that's I, I totally agree with that. You know, that's what you can learn from entrepreneurs, isn't it? They don't go to work for a job. No. This is their life. This yeah. is who they are. This yeah. is this is the mission they're on. And yeah. it never switches off. Yeah. And you, you need you need a, a, a large cut of that as a private equity band CEO, don't you? Yeah. And, and a management team. It's not a job. It's no, it's, it's a, a mission and a lifestyle. No, it is. And it's what, what was it like for you then when you when you moved away from the CEO role and you were no longer a CEO? And what do I do now? It, it was quite interesting because actually it was something that you know obviously was planned with Aries. It was kept on the wraps only myself and Aries knew for about six months until we found my replacement. And then in the February, we had to start to tell people because I had to let my, you know, my finance director in and the, the company secretary and start to plan things through and then announce it to the company in March. And up until I made the announcement, I was 100%, this is great, it's fantastic. I suddenly made the announcements and suddenly I had all sorts of self-doubts about what am I doing? I suddenly realized that a lot of who I have been for a long time in my life was wrapped up in this title of CEO and running companies. And I love working and running companies. It was something that, you know, I've done for a long time. And it's fine. I was on the journey. So I did that. Um, I thought I was going to take three months off and then I'd go and get another job and, and away we go. And um, Jackie said, oh, no, don't, don't, you know, take six months off. You've worked so hard. You've, you've got this money. Enjoy. Do things. Yeah. You know, so she was right. I took six months off and I, and I really got another friend, Simon Kosov, who's uh, used to be a CEO of uh, Carluccio's. He also says anything like, don't rush at the first, you know, non-exec director job. You know, he says, you, know, you take a bit of time. So you do need to decompress, don't you? Yeah. If what we say is true about living a lifestyle, in terms of work, you know, this is this is who you are. This is the mission you're on. Almost never switch off. You know, build build a lifestyle around it that's healthy. I mean, that sounds unhealthy. You can be really healthy with it. When you stop doing it, mm. it's, it's it's a big adjustment. So, I think I think my experience uh, is that people underestimate the decompression time they need. Yeah, I think that's uh, and certainly six months was was. After six months, I was getting restless again, but I think you, you've hit a really good point there because you run 
24-7 and I always enjoyed that and I always made time for, for family and holidays and you know tried to keep fit and you know I had a hobby I raced cars every you know once a month on a weekend but um, you know you still work was the majority of your life and then you jump off and you're able to and now I still enjoy my work but I have much more time for family the holidays and the hobbies and, and you know that's what going plural is I mean you could probably go plural and fill it back up and be as busy as yours you if you want to and I'm yeah. sure some people do if that's what you want I've, I've not chosen to do that but it, the six months off of me I, I did some things that whatever your gig is for some people it might be canoeing in Alaska for me it was riding a motorbike across America by myself um, and I came back and had a couple I had a couple other holidays I went back down to New Zealand and then in the January of 19 it's like right I need to go and start thinking about what I'm doing next and then it's a different journey because to the point I made earlier you don't want to rush it you you definitely want to um how did you how did you save the opportunities then what was your approach to thinking okay well I went to kiss a lot of frogs well I went and opened up my black book all the private equities I met I went back out and said I'm now going plural this is what I want to do you know some of them had businesses that some of them didn't mm. obviously you go and see the recruiters as well mm. and you start but I think it's very important you know there were a couple of fashion retail brands that they were very interested in having me and talking to me, but I, it wasn't of interest to me. So, you know, it would be unfair to A, the recruiter, but even the company to go forward with the process just to become an NED. So I think you have to be... So you worked out in your mind yeah, and I was going to do it. For yeah, you. And, and, you know, there was a couple I applied for that I was really quite keen on. One was in the travel sector and, you know, I wasn't successful. You, it's, it's, you know, you don't assume you'll get one. Right. I think what is key is once you've, once you get one, it definitely gets easier to get more. And if there was a word of advice I would have to any CEO who wants to become plural is try and be a non-exec director while you're still CEO, not a chairman or anything like that because that takes too much time. But I was a non-exec for a couple of businesses before. So one called Chilangos, which I did for a few years and then stepped off. And then I did Gosney, which I've now become the chair of. And I think that gives you experience to know what you're going to be doing is it when you go plural, but also it helps when you're talking to recruiters and other firms because you've got some examples of where you have to be different to your CEO role, because what they don't want to hire is someone who's going to be a CEO on top of the CEO. Yeah, you have to adapt your yeah. style, don't you? It's yeah. a very different job. It's, it is a very different job. You have to think about it in the sense of you are, if we go back to the ship analogy and a CEO is, you know, overseeing a battleship and they have a, you know, a, Right, right hand person here who's, who drives it, another person's doing the engine, another person doing the the artillery, then what the, the chairman is actually is the admiral is back at head office mm -hmm. and they're looking on a map about where you are. They're not telling the ship where to drive, but they're saying strategically, mm -hmm. are they going in the right place? Are they looking like they're doing the right things that's going to win the battle or, or whatever's trying to be achieved? And so as a chair, you you do not make the decisions for the company, but you make sure that the CEO, you've asked the questions they've thought through, and more importantly, they're focused on going in the right direction because I think it's very easy when you're, if they get in a storm or something, they might not be thinking about, am I still trying to get west? You know, because they're just thinking, I'm in a storm, I just got to keep the ship going. Yeah. And even in the storm, you need to keep the ship going in the right direction, i.e. the business still needs to be going in the right direction for the business. And it's very easy when times get tough to sometimes forget that and just think about the fires that are on your plate right here and now. And I think a chair helps you try and get that sense of direction or keep you focused. Yeah. Did you spend time thinking about the job? You know, really what? I mean, you would have had chairs along the way. You had founders that you worked for along the way. Did you spend time thinking about, okay, what, what does this mean to be a chair and what do I need to be good at 
to be effective as as a chair. I certainly thought about. It. I mean, I, I read some books as well, you know, and 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 I like to read management books anyway. So I I was very much trying to read this bit about how do I be coach rather than the CEO. I think that in the case of Piper with Bruce's, they've had a lot of chairman experience, so they were very helpful because they actually were quite upfront with the job description in a way that other companies I've been in haven't been as clear cut about what they want or don't want. So that helped as well. I think the, the real proof though is more in how you actually behave in the board meetings. How do you help the CEO and the FD write the agenda? Because you need to make sure the agenda is right and the meetings run well, but it has to be their meeting. Even though you're the chair of the meeting, the key is actually almost to do very little of the talking, but to make sure you finish on time and you've covered all the bid bits and you've got a clear set of action steps that have come out yeah, of it. Your job is outside of the meeting. That's yeah. where you're working harder, communicating with both um, sets of uh, stakeholders, shareholders, coaching, developing, yeah. in the communication channel. Yeah, and you you are independent more than anything else. So you, you want the CEO to think you're 100% on their side. You want the private equity to think you're 100% on their side. And in reality, you are on both their side, but you're independent. So you're actually going to say what you think is best for the business. And if necessary, moderate if there's a difference of view between those two parties on what is best for the business for whatever the particular challenges are being talked about. But all you can do is be the independent referee when that is a difference of thinking between those two parties. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think you've got to ask yourself what you want as well, because I think some people might want to be a non-exec or a chair to have the kudos or whatever, but don't necessarily want to be involved in business. Just I, think I, about governance. Yeah, and, and and then you have to choose the right type of business because yeah. some businesses do just want governance types of directors. It's not the type of business I'd want to be involved in. I want to be actively trying to help them develop their business model and their business plan because that's my business experience. So if you've been a CEO of bigger companies and therefore you're steering a bigger ship, then your skill set will be different than mine, which is taking small companies to medium size. Mm -hmm. And I think that you need to be clear of that in your own mind when you go looking for what type of role you want as an NED or, or a chair. Would you put a cap on the number of yeah, jobs three. you do? I, 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 yeah, for now, because I want to have that balance and I want to make sure that I'm always available for any of my yeah. teams and it and i think it's that would be another bit of advice i'd get to some people too is don't take them all at the same time i it's thought it happened for me but i started with gosney and then you know a year later i ended up getting bruce's and here i am almost two years later getting a third but it means because when you first get a new business you spend six months on it really working hard to get up to speed with it mm -hmm. and then you can sort of get a little bit more of a routine and i think if you try and take two or three on at the same time then you're going to be working every hour and then you'll be going well why am i doing this plural thing for so i would if you can stagger it i would say definitely stagger it and also going back to my ceo experience I don't think you should stay on forever either. I don't know how long. I've been on Gosling now, three, four years, but I wouldn't imagine I'll be there another three or four years because it just, you you need to evolve yourself, but the company needs to evolve as well. Well, Don, that's been brilliant. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Private Equity Power Talks podcast. And thank you to Don for sharing his private equity journey. This will be the final episode of 2021. And we would like to thank all of our listeners who have been with us from the beginning 
and encourage those who are new to take a look back at our older episodes and subscribe for more content next year. In 2022, you can expect more interviews with some of the most successful leaders in private equity, as well as a new format with the honorary members of our new executive community, where we will be looking at other PE board level functions in more detail. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.